Hello, and welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we kick off the second round of HFMA's Digital Annual Conference. I hope you're all planning to take advantage of the sessions we're hosting this week. On the podcast, we have a special segment sponsored by Iodine Software. Troy Wazilewski is here to talk about how the pandemic has affected hospital reimbursement. That's coming up after Rich and Chad go beyond the news. Hello, this is Rich Daly, Senior Writer and Editor for HFMA. And hi, I'm Chad Mulvaney, a Policy Director with HFMA. Thanks for joining us on the Beyond the News segment of the podcast, where we take a quick look at the significance of recent healthcare finance news developments. Among the major recent healthcare news was the release of a report by the advisors of likely Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden and former rival Senator Bernie Sanders on what may become the official platform of both Biden and the party. Major components of the health care plan include creation of a so-called public option, expansion of the ACA marketplace, lowering the Medicare eligibility age from 65 to 60, and increased antitrust enforcement against hospital mergers. So, Chad, what provisions among the many do you think hospital CFOs might be especially interested in? Yeah, Rich. No, it's good to be chatting with you again. You know, it's like any good campaign document. There's a lot of things there that are given, but there's not a lot of details provided to really kind of understand what's going on under the surface. You know, I think on the positive side of the ledger for states that have not expanded Medicaid, certainly the additional incentives for states to expand would be something that CFOs would be interested in viewed positively. On the negative side, depending on how it's rolled out and positioned, you know, the public option could be problematic, particularly as we think about weaker health systems and hospitals now and potentially physician practices as a result of COVID. Anything that sort of adds additional transactional friction to health systems acquiring weakened entities and making sure that those entities are there to continue providing access to the community would certainly be problematic. And then also, you know, again, depending on how it's rolled out, decreasing the age for Medicare eligibility from 65 to 60 could certainly shift people from commercial sponsored, you know, reasonably well-paying commercial plans into Medicare fee-for-service or Medicare Advantage, which certainly pays less. And then finally, you you highlighted it, you know, the additional emphasis on allowing healthcare workforces to unionize and then also uh, increasing the minimum wage could be problematic from a cost standpoint. So the other question among the many is on the public option, which the authors of the plan envisioned become very large by attracting many with employer-sponsored insurance. What can states experience with creating their own public options tell us about its hospital effect? Yeah, and you know, we're, we're early in it, but even just sort of reading the document, the, the piece about allowing people with employer-sponsored insurance to purchase the public option and the exchanges caught my attention. And one of the things that's missing is, would these individuals be eligible for subsidies and how far up would those subsidies go? So would they be able to access subsidies in the exchange as well? If that's the case, then yes, I could see this moving volume from employer-sponsored products into a public option. The next question then sort of in thinking about how you would execute this, and this is particular to kind of the state experience. If you think about the one state that's enacted a public option, Washington state, enacted a public option, set caps on what 
the plans that were responsible for sort of rolling out the public option could pay providers and then left it to the plans to negotiate. However, there was nothing in there that compelled the providers to participate in the public option. So it wasn't like if you were participating in the state Medicaid program, you also had to participate with the state public option. And so absent that, I'm not sure some type of requirement like that. I'm not sure why many physician practices or hospitals and health systems would want to join in and take less for basically the same patient population, particularly if it sort of becomes a a self-reinforcing cycle. So I'm not real sure at this point how it's going to the impact of it will depend on how it's structured and how disruptive it is. I guess the other thing I would say is really sort of any public option that gets put into federal law and is offered through the exchanges, I think would sort of you sort of have a nose under the camel's tent to head to something that would become mandatory. Uh, I guess my my last thought would be just the idea that CMS is now going to negotiate rates with you know, roughly 6,000 hospitals and how many ever odd independent physician practices or even hospital line physician practices out there, sort of like what commercial plans do to me seems like that's going to be incredibly duplicative of what's, what's already being done in the commercial sector. So how that would be executed and what that looks like sort of leaves me scratching my head a bit. And just to bring our listeners up to speed on this week, there was news that uh, several plans have been secured to provide the public option in Washington. Um, However, the negotiations with hospitals are are reportedly ongoing, so TBD on that. The other question I did want to check with you on too, Chad, about this new proposal is that the individual market also would be expanded and bolstered through the proposal. Additionally, I wanted to check if there's any state experience that could show whether the proposed changes would actually drive the type of enrollment growth that the writers of the agreement envision? You know, I don't know if we've got any state experience that we could look at it. I think this sort of pre-ACA, there was this assumption that we would see employers, even though there was an employer mandate, start to abandon providing employer-sponsored insurance as a benefit once they saw that there was a stable other option that was more flexible that allowed their employees to retain health care coverage. That obviously, as we know, has not happened. However, if suddenly you get a public option and it's robust and providers are compelled to participate and it's at a lower price point on a, on a reimbursement standpoint than commercial options, I think then, yeah, you would see employees start to vote with their feet and even employers start to walk away from that. I think also the thing that would be kind of interesting from employer standpoint to see is just what's the financing mechanism for this? Because obviously, if, if they think they're going to have to pay more out of pocket to support a public option than they're currently paying for covering their employees through ERISA plans or through sort of the, the small group market, they, they obviously won't support it. And so you could see quite a bit of pushback, not only from the industry, but from other stakeholders like employers. Well, I guess moving questions and all these and the news developments behind them also are advancing. So we'll keep you up to speed on those as they unfold. But thanks a lot for the insights in the meantime today, Chad, and for joining us once again on the podcast. Hey, Rich, always great to chat with you and certainly suspect that we'll be talking about this quite a bit between now and November. There you go. Of course, you can also keep up with the latest news developments in both political policy 
and in healthcare finance practice by checking out our news page at hfma.org forward slash news. Thanks for listening. If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. Hospital reimbursement has been a big area of concern during the COVID-19 pandemic. So our sponsor today, Iodine Software, decided to take a look at some data around how the pandemic was affecting healthcare organizations. My guest, Troy Wazilewski, Chief Revenue Officer at Iodine, talked with me about it recently. What we started with was a realization that we had an enormous amount of data that could potentially contribute to the larger understanding of COVID-19 and particularly its impact on health systems. We have data from over 450 hospitals in the United States um, that encompasses about 20 million patient admissions, roughly one in every seven inpatient stays in the United States. And at the time when we initially started running this analysis, it included over 60,000 COVID-19 positive cases, of which around 35,000 of which wound up being admitted to inpatient services in the hospital. So the database was huge, and we decided there was an opportunity to query this database and come up with some analyses and some understandings. And where we started first was looking at the period of March 4th, 2020 to May 3rd, 2020, uh, which we were doing actually in real time, week by week, and trying to understand in particular the financial impact of COVID-19 on health systems. That's something we continued to do, looking at that in a number of different ways, and we are continuing to run this research today. One of the things that this analysis showed was that even prior to handling an appreciable volume of COVID-19 patients, hospitals were already experiencing an approximate 30% dip year over year in expected reimbursement. But even in the wake of COVID-19 with elective surgeries canceled, when COVID-19 weekly submissions surpassed 7%, inpatient reimbursement rose above 2019 levels. So can you talk about this analysis? Really what we saw, and this is, I think, the the main point, was a tale of of two cities or or two health systems. And it really, the financial impact of COVID really changed depending on, frankly, how large of a volume of COVID-19 patients those health systems saw. So prior to even seeing significant intake of inpatients with COVID-19 diagnoses, health systems did see about a 30% dip in their expected reimbursement due to the loss of elective surgeries and a uh, secondary resulting loss of medical patients as patients began to avoid seeking care in health systems. And that was significant. And we were able to see that actually in real time, partially powered by a, a solution we have that forecasts in advance the DRG of the patient when they enter the hospital. So we were able to see this in real time, forecasting reimbursement out really a month or two in advance. But again, um, what really happened here depended on the volume of COVID-19 patients the health system saw. So for those that saw an appreciable volume of COVID-19 patient admissions, reimbursement started to recover once those COVID-19 admissions reached 7% of their total weekly admissions. So we actually started to see some recovery. And when weekly COVID-19 admissions hit 10% of their inpatient admissions per week, 
health systems recovered to an expected reimbursement level as high as 95% as the same period in 2019. And that reimbursement recovery was driven by high medical volumes from COVID-19 patient loads, as well as increased CMI due to the higher acuity of the very ill COVID-19 patients that were coming into the health systems. These impacts managed to counterweight what was still a significant reduction of reimbursement associated with surgical volumes, which remained at about 52% of their 2019 reimbursement through that period. So the long story short, if you saw, unfortunately, a large number of COVID-19 patients, in particular over 10% of your weekly admissions on the inpatient side, it was likely that your reimbursement was running as high as 95% as the same period as last year. Now, Conversely, for those that did not see a significant number of COVID-19 patients, specifically below 7% of their weekly admissions, the reimbursement recovery never materialized. And those health systems continued to struggle with very low volumes of both surgical patients and medical patients. And it's worth noting, while this initial set of observations follow the time frame of March 1st to May 3rd of this year, it's a telling story, I think, that may play out again in submarkets across the U.S., perhaps cyclically. Um, as as um, uh, COVID sort of moves across the country. I mean, example, given this week, we're hearing a lot about the Houston market and uh, we'll be monitoring to see if we see similar types of outcomes there. So for the benefit of our listener, we are recording this segment on June 29th, 2020. As we know, COVID has the landscape changing weekly and sometimes daily. But As of today, many states have reopened, elective surgeries can be resumed. Some areas are kind of going back to normal, but we're seeing surges. So, you know, time will tell what happens next. But where are we right now with elective and non-elective surgery admission volumes? And what does this mean for health systems? First off, where we are today is seeing fast recovery of volumes at those organizations affected by COVID-19 once restrictions were lifted. So elective surgery inpatient emissions dropped to their lowest volume level during the week of April 1st, which was 23% on average of 2019 admissions year over year. That was the lowest point. Beginning in the week of April 22nd, with some of the states reopening, admissions began to increase and they increased almost as quickly as they had dropped off. Our latest data shows that non-elective surgery admission volume is at 94% of 2019 levels, and elective surgery admission volume is at 96% of 2019 volumes. Now, to your point, Eric, we may see that change as different volume spikes occur across the country. Uh, Again, you know, look at Houston and potential impacts in Florida during this week. It's also important to note here that while we've seen such a rapid recovery, and it really is, and the graphs are fascinating to see the recovery as how rapid it is, it's important to note that the early surge of patients included cases of patients who have become far more acutely ill, and therefore the urgency to get them back into the health system and treat them was quite immediate, which has filled up OR schedules quite quickly. It's also possible that the well of patients is no longer as deep as it once was, So, for instance, we've heard that some patients have permanently disengaged with respect to a procedure. They're no longer candidates or it's no longer necessary or they have no desire to continue on with it, Uh, sometimes caused by greater economic hardship, limiting patients' access to care going forward. 
And the, the final thing I'll say here is there's also some real demand transformation underway, right? We've heard a lot about this. Patients are receiving care through new channels, outpatient sites instead of inpatient, right? Virtual care instead of in-person visits. So we'll see how this plays out. But the long story short is that as restrictions were lifted, both non-elective and elective surgery volume in particular recovered at a very rapid rate. And as of our last data poll, um, we were showing them very close to year-over-year parity with 2019 volumes. That's really fascinating. You hear a lot about patients being nervous about going back, and it would seem that your, your analysis might counter that a little bit, given the percentages you shared. Yes, at least in this early phase of, you know, what some are hypothesizing as being sort of pent-up demand, we'll continue to monitor this to see whether this changes over time and whether we see a consistent recovery or one that really was driven by pent-up demand and then settles at a rate lower than, you know, years past. This segment was sponsored by Iodine Software. Iodine Software is a healthcare AI company that has pioneered a new machine learning approach, cognitive emulation, to help healthcare finance leaders build resilient organizations. Iodine's Cognitive ML Engine unifies clinical concepts, evidence-based medicine, and deep machine learning to power a suite of software for health system revenue cycle performance improvement. Iodine applied their Cognitive ML Engine to emulate clinical judgment in their Aware CDI suite, which focuses on documentation reliability rather than improvement to better hone in on the root cause of documentation and revenue leakage. Their Aware CDI solution considers the entire scope of the clinical record the way that a clinician would, only at vast scale, including every patient, every record, all day, every day, allowing them to identify documentation gaps that lead to quality improvement and revenue generation. To date, Iodine has partnered with over 480 hospitals in the U.S. to collectively realize a 75% increase in normalized query volume and increase MCC capture by 21% on average. Voices in Healthcare Finance is produced by the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler. Brad Dennison is our Director of Content Strategy. Our President and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Thanks to our sponsor this week, Iodine Software. We hope you'll be joining us this week for our digital annual conference. We've got several great speakers lined up. We also hope you'll rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast. And as always, if you have any questions or ideas about what you'd like to hear, you can reach out to our team at podcast at hfma.org. Retake.